about more questions. The questions never end, do they? Okay, goodness gracious. That's enough, yeah. Now, one of the experiences as a young monk, kind of middle monk, there was one of these monks in Thailand called Ajahn Tate. And I heard about him and I was very impressed with him. And so one day I went to go and see him. And I wanted to ask some questions of him. And because he was a very wise monk, and my, my Thai, my Lao was really good by that time. But even for him, I had to make like an appointment, wait a couple of days to go and see him. And I had all these questions all organized, what I would ask him. But those of you who don't know this story, what happened next was uh, I went into his room, uh, and he was such a simple monk, but the king of Thailand had built him this big, almost like a palace. And this, he was just sitting in a corner, watching over the Mekong River. Like, you know, he didn't belong there, he was just put in there because that's where, people, where the king wanted him to be. But then I went up to him, and I bowed three times, and then went to ask my questions. And that was one of those wonderful experiences that I was so, felt so peaceful, so much loving kindness, so much acceptance, that all my questions vanished. There was no need for any questions anymore. It was such a, a wonderful, the peace and the kindness which she exuded was just evaporated the questions. The questions weren't needed anymore. And that was a wonderful experience. And I remember at the time thinking that they're going to have to drag me out of this hall with chains and uh, water buffalo. That's the only way they're going to get me out of here. I'm going to just stay here forever. Because there was such an acceptance and peace and, and happiness which you felt there. And I always think that's where the old questions end. When you have the peace and the happiness and the contentment inside of you, all the questions are gone. So it's a wonderful little experience. And I just made something up. I said, you know, <laughs> having waited for a couple of days to an appointment to ask these questions, I said, you know, you know that all the questions you can answer yourself. He said, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but anyway, the experience was worth it. During walking meditation, are you still a passive observer? Correct. And sometimes when you do walking meditation, hopefully you'll have these experiences. If you walk there long enough, you, know, you go to the end of the, the walk and then you turn around, you come back and then, and then you turn around again. After a while, you don't make any decisions of turning around or walking. It's automatic. I really mean that. That's why... They used to say that when um, the soldiers would go on marches, they could march you know, for hours, and they could fall asleep when they were marching. They'd still keep on, on uh, walking, but they wouldn't need to actually to give the instructions to their legs or their feet to walk. It became an automatic, repetitive process. And it's wonderful when that happens to you, when you're doing your walking meditation, you just, the legs are doing the walking. But you know, you really, you aren't controlling them at all. They do it really well. So it just gives a bit more idea about, you know, what non-self is and not willing. But it, you do become a passive observer. Trouble is, we do too much. Does your meditation object change each time you walk? Sometimes I notice the feel under my feet, sometimes how muscles move, and sometimes the pattern of my body shifting from side to side. Of course, the uh, object which you observe changes. Just like in meditation, it changes. You know, you might you start off, I start off, you know, just with making sure the posture is generally okay. Then you do a little body sweep to make sure the body is nice. Then again, you just relax the body, and then I usually go into things like peace or silence. And then you go to the breath, and then you go to the delightful breath, and you go to nimittas, 
Of course the object changes. Many of you have come from overseas. And if you've come from overseas or come from Melbourne or Sydney or somewhere, you came in an aircraft. But you didn't bring the aircraft into Jarna Grove, thank goodness. You took the aircraft as far as the aircraft can come. Then you got out of the aircraft and then you got a taxi or a car as far as a car can bring you, which is a car park out there. Then you get out of the car and then you walk in your shoes as far as the shoes can take you. And then you take your shoes off and you come into the hall here. A different vehicle, so to speak, for every stage of the journey. And just like there's so many different uh, objects of meditation for the different stages of meditation. You have know, rough objects at the beginning, then you go to something like the breath, which is quite fine, and the breath actually changes as you watch it. And then you get like nimittas, and then you go into these bliss states. Each one, you cannot take the breath into the jhanas. You can't even take the nimitta into the jhanas. It leads you into the jhanas, but then the nimitta is left uh, outside the jhanas. That's how this mind works. Different objects for different stages. Oops. Dear Ajahn Brahm, is it the right thing when people seeing some bright or colorful objects when meditating? Yes, okay. Is it just their imagination? What's the difference between reality when you go into mind states and imagination? And I say this because there was one good old friend and he was the one who said that he had such difficulty in watching his breath, he found it impossible to do breath meditation. But he had a teacher, and the teacher was brilliant, and the teacher said, well, don't watch the breath. Just imagine you're watching the breath. What would, be, what would it be like to watch the breath? Just imagine, fantasize it. And that's what he did. And then, after five minutes, the teacher said, what are you watching? <laughs> he admitted it was the breath. It's just a psychological trick. Because when you are aware of something, the difference between your imagination and reality is not that great. And especially when you get to things like nimittas. There's another, please don't try this, it takes a lot of work. But there's a type of meditation called kasina meditation. That's where you, you, know, you have a nice uh, disc of your favorite color, and you look at it, and you close your eyes until you can imagine that color as if you've got your eyes open and watching it. And then when you can actually sustain your awareness on an image like that, of course, that image changes into the nimitta, which is like, it's like the same kind of color, like a blue or something, but it's much deeper blue, much brighter, and easy to watch. Imagination is an image in the mind. It's a mental object. That's why when we get into the mind states, don't think the imagination is not real. These things are very real. Uh, should the observer or let it go? No, don't make a choice. If it stays, it stays. If it goes, it goes. It's not your choice. I know about a Hawaiian old method just by saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I thank you, I love you. Will it be helped to use with the loving-kindness meditation? Yeah, give it a try. You don't know if it's going to work until you give it a try, experiment, and see what happens. How does meditation mindfulness help with emotional regulation? and dealing with the ups and downs of life. I used to have lots of ups and downs in my life uh, when I used to fly up in the air and land over in Jakarta or somewhere. That was my ups and downs of life, even right now. You know, going up to the stairs to 
you know, the teacher's cottage and down in the morning to come and teach you guys. <laughs> but the emotional regulation and dealing with the ups and downs of life. You know, sometimes we think, well, should you abandon all your emotions? No, there are good emotions. We abandon our negative emotions, things like fear, like grief, anger, uh, anything to do with ill will, just craving. But then there's other emotions that we, um, we cultivate. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, contentment, inspiration is one of those emotions which are brilliant. And also peace is an emotion. It's a quality of a mental state. So all those emotions, yes, please cultivate them. They lead to enlightenment, and they actually express enlightenment. It was wonderful. Actually, this is when Ajahn Chah went to the United States. Afterwards, some of the senior teachers over there said, Ah, oh, it's wonderful to see Ajahn Chah. Because all these Burmese teachers, they would never smile. And they were like, quite scary, according to some of these US uh, meditators. They saw Ajahn Chah and he was smiley. They said, oh, it's wonderful. You know, we know how wise you are. And now we realize we can be smiley when we meditate. And that's one of the wonderful things. He's, and he told us when he came back, he said, when you go to the United States, you know, you've got to smile a lot. When you go to Japan, he said, you've got to be serious. <laughs> he called that adapting to the culture, wherever you want to go. <laughs> okay, so emotional regulation, but it's the negative emotions, the cause of those. Why do you want to um, see the world in such a way that these negative emotions like anger come from? Anger, this is a world. It doesn't go according to the way you want it to go. It goes the way that, I don't know, it goes all over the place, and that's life. So it's a waste of time getting angry at life. I don't know where I am now. <laughs> Did I answer this question? I'll find out in a moment. Goodness gracious. After the nimitta, still mine, can go out. Can you please explain? After the nimitta, still, mind can go out. Go out where? Can you please explain? I don't want you to explain. <laughs> After I saw nimitta, what can I do? After you see the nimitta, just do nothing. Remember, just that's one animal which comes out of the bush in that simile this morning of the still forest pool. That's just one animal comes out. See what comes out next. See how the nimitta just can become another nimitta, become brighter, become more brilliant, more beautiful. See just what happens. Stillness doesn't mean that nothing will happen. From stillness, things disappear. The outermost petal disappears and see what's inside. So that's why when you're very, very still, when you get to the nimitta stage, you've got so much energy, you can't fall asleep. So just you wait there and see what's inside of this. I was reflecting on the simile about the donkey chasing after the carrot. <laughs> And it made me think how Western culture asks us to work hard, be ambitious and productive. And Eastern culture, Buddhism, encourages us to let go, detach, and how to be uh, free of desire, uh, content, free of desire. How, how do we have a balance of both? I know that it was Dr. K. Sri Dhammananda. He just once, he went to um, this conference and there was a lunch there and someone had put a chopstick and a fork. 
And he said, East meets West. <laughs> it's a simple thing. But when there's something to do, you give it everything you've got. I do work hard. People see me working hard. When there's work to be done, you work hard. When there's nothing to do, you do nothing. So simple. Trouble is, a lot of people, when they work hard, they complain. And when there's nothing to do, they find something to do. <laughs> That's the West Adelies combined, it's just it's ridiculous. But you know, there are some cultures I've seen, and the culture which I was really impressed with was the Laotian culture. Because in Laos, they just had, they worked hard when it was time to work hard, when the rice needed planting or needed reaping or, or needed sort of uh, threshing. Oh, they worked so hard. But then when that was all done, they'd sleep most of the day. And they just take the water buffalo slowly out to the fields and they sit down, just an excuse to do nothing. And they, whenever you'd meet them, you know, and they were just sitting around doing nothing, you'd ask them, now, how are you? And they'd use this word, you know, in Laotian, they're just living. And they, was, they were just so lazy. But, you know, in a way that I was really jealous. They, were just, they didn't have much, but they had everything they needed. Life was good. They had time for one another. That's what was really impressive. And, of course, uh, when I first went up to that part of Northeast Thailand, there was no electricity, and their life was very, very simple. And then uh, the Westerners came in, you know, to give them aid and develop the place. <laughs> you saw what it was like beforehand, and honestly, you know, the, maybe they extended people's life, but then in those old days, there was something there which was very warm and lovely, which, because I was a monk, you know, you were straight away part of the village. You know, it was a weird experience. If you were just a, a, an aid worker, you're, you got treated as a Westerner. But if you were a monk, you got treated as like a Thai, an, a Laotian, treated like one of them. I mean, literally. And because of that, you got entry into parts of their life and seeing just how they lived. And one of those was one evening going into the village uh, for doing a little ceremony. I think somebody had died. And when we went into the village, we saw every house. It was on stilts, water buffalo underneath, and they had little rooms uh, on the outside of the, the platform. And in the platform there, uh, you could see the family's faces there because they used a, a bowl with oil in it, usually kerosene, and then they used the top of a toothpaste tube. You notice where they, you squeeze it and the, the toothpaste comes out. But they just shoved a rag up there, an old cloth, and they float that in the oil and they'd light the, the rag. That's where they got their light from. It was really smoky and that kept the mosquitoes away. It was very, very high-tech. <laughs> but what they would do every evening, there was no TV or radio available, so they would all sit around in like a semicircle every evening, and they'd tell old jokes, old stories, which the kids had heard many times before, just like when people watch the... The movies, they watch movies they've seen many times before. Just because you know the ending, that's not the point. Because you know the punchline of the joke, that's not the point. Okay. There was... <laughs> I can't resist, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if it's a Buddhist joke, but anyway... This uh, boy invited his girlfriend to the school prom and, you know, she accepted. So he was very excited. So he had to go to the, the shop to get a tuxedo. And because it was a prom time, there's so many people lining up, you know, for the, the, the tuxedo. So he had to join the tuxedo line. 
eventually he got his tuxedo. And then he had to go and get a, a, a car, fancy car for the, for the school prom. He had to go into another queue, another line for the prom, for the, uh, the, the limousine. Then he had to get the flowers, he had to go in another long line to uh, get the flowers. Then I forget what else he had to get, I'll cut it short. And then he went out to get the tickets. He had to queue in another long line to get the tickets. And eventually when he got to the venue for the prom, another long line, he had to uh, stand it to get, to get the, uh, the entry to the, the prom. And then when he was in there with his girlfriend, he asked his girl what he wanted to, what she wanted to drink. And she said she'd have you know, a glass of punch. There was no punchline. Something you thought was funny. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thank you for building this amazing retreat place. It is so calm and silent, thus it feels so effortless when we sit down. We could listen to our breath immediately. Great. I am thankful for the opportunity. We'll forever be grateful. It is indeed a holiday, so much better compared to Europe or US trip. Many thanks. That's one of the nice things that, you know, when we doing all this building work, um, and first of all, getting a monastery for ourselves, we built that, worked very hard, and when we had a fire, the monastery survived it. So, you know, things were going well. So what next? Nuns Monastery? That was number two on the list. Because that's, maybe because I'm a Westerner, I'm not sure, but it never felt fair. We have all these monks and the places they can go, and there's no real good place for women. So that's the next thing we got, Dhammasara Nuns Monastery. And that was really fun to actually to get because <laughs> I was organizing again. I don't know why I do all these organizing things, but it was good fun. So um, we were started, first of all, a website. No, no website, no. An, an article to get a bank account to raise money for the, the nuns' monastery. And then that was just finding out if people were really interested. And of course, we only got about... 30,000 or something, you can't get much for that. I think even at that time. And then, this uh, one of my friends, he said, oh, this, somebody wants to make a donation for your nuns monastery. And so, because his wife, he's a Buddhist, but he said his wife had just given birth to, her, to their first child, who was a girl. And he said, I want to do something to celebrate the birth of my daughter. And I don't know if, ever, if she ever wants to become a nun, but if she does, I want to have a nice place where she can become a nun. And so he handed over a check of $250,000. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I'm usually a pretty balanced monk, but when he handed it over to me... <laughs> <laughs> and that was... How long ago was that? A long time ago. And that's actually you know, how those amazing events actually change things. So, you know, we were in business. So, and then we had to find a place. So we were looking all over the place. And first of all, uh, we're looking at 30 acres here, a little bit of farmland there. And honestly, I thought, no, you can't have a second-rate place for nuns. It's got to be a nice place. And we're going down this place called Reen Road in Gidjigadup. There was a 30-acre block somewhere down there. We passed this big sign, 583 acres of solitude. I thought it looks nice. <laughs> so the driver said, let's go and have a look. He said, no, look, we can't afford that. How do you know? <laughs> so it doesn't cost anything to have a look, and we have a look, and you know, you know the place is gorgeous. Really quite close to town, and one of the last pieces of um, bush land which hadn't been developed. And how much is going to be? Well, they said they'd already had an offer of one million, 
dollars and they turned it down. So uh, let's see what happens. So what we did, I went in there with this Ajahn Chatamala, if you can remember him. We went in there early, it was going to be auctioned. So we went in there, we went to a central place there, and boy did we do some chanting. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get all the good energy there. <laughs> and our treasurer, you know, we, you know, we've got to pay for it somehow. We can't get the Davis to pay for it, but <laughs> the treasurer, he said, you know, with borrowing from here and borrowing from there, maybe we should be able to aff afford 600000 our maximum. We can't go above that. So then the auction started. <laughs> and um, good old Eddie Fernando, you all know him, I hope, he was my hero that day. He was the one doing the bidding for us. So when it got to 600000 he put his hand up, 600. And then I started, I closed my eyes and did this. <laughs> May everybody's mouth be jammed tight. <laughs> we need a miracle. <laughs> you know what happened? Somebody put their hand up, 625. We'd lost it. That's what I thought. And then Eddie put his hand up, 650. <laughs> And the treasurer who was standing next to me went, <laughs> he went ballistic. He said, you can't do that. We can't afford it. No way. Tell him, Ajahn Brahm, tell him to stop. But, you know, no, our character is something really good. Of course you find some way of getting an extra $50,000 somewhere. So I said, leave him alone. And that's what it passed in at, 650. So we got it. Then we had to <laughs> find the extra 50000 <laughs> But people were so happy. It's a beautiful place, as you all know. And that's actually how we got it. So, you know, bidding far more than we can afford. <laughs> but it came. So those are the sorts of things. You know, you run on faith, on inspiration. Or well, some people say stupidity. I don't know, but it's worked so far for us. But, you know, it was important that, you know, the bhikkhunis had a lovely place. Not an ordinary place. And some of you have been there, you can say it's, you know, it's, even, it's more beautiful than Bodhinyana. Some people say. Dear Ajahn, when thoughts about the past and future arise during meditation, what is the practical process of letting them go? Uh, they've come up to try and... Well, it depends. If you are just being silly, you're just being bored, nothing much going on. Sometimes it's like when you... What do people do when they... On the TV or on a... They surf the internet, surf all the different channels just to see what's on. There's nothing on here, nothing on there, nothing on there. Why do you even search in the first place? You're bored, you're looking to sometime, somehow distract yourself. So if it's one of those future and past come because you just don't want to stay in the present moment, the reason is because you're not kind enough to the present moment. But sometimes it is something in the future or the past is really important and you just try to distract yourself away from that by being in the present moment, you find it keeps coming back up again. So if that's the case, invite it in and be kind to it. Okay, past, what are you trying to tell me? Instead of trying to get rid of it, make that your object of meditation. Or the future. You know, why are you afraid of that? Just because it didn't work in the past doesn't mean it's not going to work in the future. So, you know, that just doing those steady auctions. People said, this doesn't work, you can't do it that way. You just have got no money to, to do any building for the place. We find that. So, and for letting them go, I always, uh, these days, think that kindness is really important. As I said a few days ago, be kind to the past. And also, don't own it. We always think it's your past. It wasn't your past. It's just your memory of the past, number one. And number two, if it was really yours, you'd never be able to let it go. It visits you. 
It can come and it can go. You don't have to grab ownership of it. And that makes life much more easier when you, you don't own very much. Can ghost spirit visit us during the deep meditation? Ghosts. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know that there was, uh, not this time, but uh, there was one of the most dangerous ghosts uh, in the world was spotted in Perth recently. I mean, it, it, I've, honestly, I've seen it myself. Honestly. And I've seen it kill people. It's a very dangerous ghost. It was, it's called the bottle ghost. <laughs> it lives in bottles. Not all bottles, but some bottles. And you open the lid or take out the cork and you pour it in a glass and you drink it and it takes you over. It possesses you. It's called whiskey, <laughs> rum, gin. Why do you think they're called spirits? <laughs> <laughs> now that's the ghost you can see. But that is not allowed in here because of the five precepts. But the true thing about ghosts or spirits is they are lower beings. In the cosmology of Buddhism, you live much higher than the ghosts and the spirits. You have far more power. All the things which ghosts can do is scare you. But they can't harm you. And I know this because some of my friends... One of my friends, as you all know, Professor Bernard Kai, Emeritus Professor of Theoretical Physics at Queen Mary College in London University, and also, most importantly, he's a Buddhist, but he's also, he was the president of the Psychic Research Society. As students, we used to go looking for ghosts with all the equipment to try and find out, you know, get a nice photograph of them. And uh, our common best friend, he had his wonderful business card, he was the head ghost hunter of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It was a wonderful business card he had. <laughs> His name was Dr. Tony Cornell. And he was a good mate. We used to you know, hang out together. But Bernard eventually became a close associate working with uh, Stephen Hawkins. And he used that sort of his scientific uh, credentials you know, as a ghost hunter. So, you know, this wasn't so a crackpot. It was um, a very, very smart person. And they, one thing which they found, documented, it's true, that ghosts have never harmed a human being. Real ghosts. Make me scared. But they say sometimes, remember Tony... Dr. Tony Cornell saying sometimes he was in houses and things were flying all over the room. You know, eggs, I don't know why eggs uh, came out and other stuff, but they would always go past your ear. They'd never hit it. And it's so many times it was like weird. So it's almost like an unwritten law that the ghosts can't hurt you. Except in movies. <laughs> And in movies, anyway, I've also noticed that they can only hurt beautiful girls, young girls. Old girls, they just leave alone. <laughs> and young men, sometimes. But old fat monks, they always leave alone. <laughs> and <laughs> that's just in movies. But another real truthful thing is they are scared, especially of monks. Maybe nuns too. If your meditation is really strong, then they're terrified of you. You have much, much more power than they have. You just have to make use of it. So over here, you're really safe. If you see any spirits, any ghosts, tell them to come over to the teacher's cottage <laughs> and I'll sort them out. <laughs> Ah, please, Nigel, no, anything. 
What is the difference between the death of an enlightened person in Buddhism and the atheist's conception of death as no rebirth? Okay, when an enlightened person, you don't even call them die, the body dies, and their mind just stops, vanishes, like the flame going up. The atheist conception of death, i.e. no rebirth, they think there's no rebirth, but they find out they were wrong. That's the problem. Imagine like atheists committing suicide, they've had enough, they want to kill themselves. And that's really depressing. After they kill themselves, they're still there. <laughs> they can't do anything right. <laughs> so anyway, that's the difference there. Whether you believe in it or not, the rebirth, the stream of consciousness carrying on after death happens. It doesn't depend upon belief. If I believe that when I throw my hat up, it won't come down, that was wrong. It doesn't depend upon belief. There are laws which are followed. Okay, dear Achambran, does jhana lead to becoming a once-returner, non-returner, or is it a certainty? No, it's not a certainty. You cannot become a once-returner, non-returner without the jhanas. So it's, it's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. As well as having the jhanas, you also need what is called in Buddhism, like paratagosa, the words of another enlightened being to be able to actually to give you a way of understanding you know, what those jhanas are. The jhanas give you the power and the data, but how to interpret that in a way which makes you enlightened, that's where you need another enlightened being's teachings. It's one of the reasons why you had, right, for those of you who know your Buddhist history, Theravada Buddhist history, you had the Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, now, he got some jhanas, but he didn't really understand. He had too much of a sense of self to understand just what it meant. So he just used the power of those um, jhanas, psychic powers, to make a big name for himself. There's one thing to let you know when people do have psychic powers, and if they misuse them you know, for their own personal status or for gain, then you'll, you'll find they'll lose those powers. It's almost like a, a safety mechanism. If you abuse them, you, use, you lose them. So you have to have a jhana to become uh, one of they call the Aryans. They call it an Aryan, but please don't confuse that with Adolf Hitler and his Aryan nation. I don't know where he got that one from. But anyway, to one of the four enlightened ones. So, I know Adolf Hitler wasn't enlightened. I think I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> so, um, it's not a certainty, but the odds are improving a lot. You just need to listen to somebody else who can tell you exactly what had happened and what it means. And little things, like, you know, as your, your will disappears, well, who actually chooses what you do in life? Are you really in control of your life? Or when you come here, are you being brainwashed by Ajahn Brahm? <laughs> I admit it, you are. Yeah. It's nice brainwashing. Just like you wash your clothes, you wash your dishes, it's a good thing to do. <laughs> so anyway, that you do need the words of another to get you to see in a different way, which you can't do by yourself. So how did the Buddha, Sakyamuni, he got jhanas, but how did he hear the words of another? Who taught him? Answer? Kasapu the Buddha, yeah. I told you that the other day. Another question. Can you please share your experience about meditating with a mantra? 
I've had a few bad experiences thus far, i.e. nightmares, and elevated stress or discomfort. Did I tell you when I had nightmares when I first ordained? When I first became a monk, only a novice monk in Bangkok, then I remember waking up in the middle of the night, I still remember this, with nightmares. But my nightmare, and this is honest, my nightmare was that I was a lay person. And when I opened my eyes and saw my robes folded next to my bed on the floor, then I thought, I am a monk. <laughs> and, and I closed my eyes and carried on in a nice peaceful sleep. It was weird. It just showed me psychologically that's how much I really wanted to be a monk. You see it there, and just the robes are just right next to you. You feel so safe. But experience with a mantra, I don't usually use mantra. You, you tried buddho, 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 but before I even did that, I'd already learned some meditation as a lay person in England. And because I'd already learned about meditating, when you heard the Buddhist mantra, buddho, buddho, you tried it. But then I preferred just doing it silently, without any mantra. So I don't usually use mantras. Sometimes when I meditate after yoga, a good sweaty movement class, I find myself detached from my body and unconscious of my surroundings. I would wake up feeling very energized. Okay. Is this yoga nidra, also known as sleeping yoga, or deep meditation? I don't really know, but if you feel very energized and very good, nothing wrong with that. So do it. Uh, detach from my body and unconscious of my surroundings. But what are you conscious of? Sometimes uh, you let go of what's on the outside, but you're still very aware. You don't let go of awareness totally in meditation. So you may not be feeling your body at all, but you're feeling just the breath inside or peace inside or nimittas inside. You're having a wonderful time, fully aware. It's just you're not aware of your body. Can you please advise us on some perceptions of the world that we can cultivate to have so much metta and taking life so relaxed as you do? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. One of them is to see the goodness in the world. Some people say, Hajjan Brahma, you should go and watch the news or you know, go and see what's happening in this world and say there's so much good in this world. Because there is. And sometimes I've met some really important people, quite a few presidents. And look, you know, the Rajapaksa, when I first met him, he was a president of Sri Lanka. And I always remember him because he invited me into his palace, you know, for breakfast. And he served me with his own hand baked beans. <laughs> That's crazy. Because <laughs> the first thing he said to me, it's all you Sri Lankans here, because the president of Sri Lanka for a while, you know, he said he just got out of bed. You know, you could see, because you know, they have to really work late into the middle of the night, late into the night. He was just rubbing his eyes, you know, just you can notice he just got out of bed. And he said to me when he first saw me, he said, I'm a failure. And those words really hit because he was one of the most popular um, presidents at that time in Sri Lanka. He said, I'm a failure. And then he explained why. He said he joined politics, in his words, because he wanted to solve the problem with the Tamil Tigers at the time peacefully. And he said, I failed. So we're taking a military option now. And he said that with such pathos. So you do see sort of some of these uh, very powerful figures. And sometimes you can see they've got some goodness inside them, some kindness. And if you can so somehow focus on that kindness, that goodness, that starts to blossom. And the problem is, there's the old story of the elephant who became a bad elephant 
And the reason was because there was a gang of thieves would would spend the night behind the elephant store planning all their activities. If a person associates with bad people, they become bad. That's one of the problems with people in power. A lot of them they accumulate other sort of um, selfish and greedy people around them. So you know, they shouldn't be in power for too long. Anyway, but when you actually just see there are good people in this world, really good people, and those really good people, when you can see their goodness and their kindness, they can see it in themselves. And that's, that's one of the best compliments I ever got was from this um, prison officer. This was in, they keep changing the name of these jails, but it was in the Casuarina jail. No, sorry, not Casuarina, I got it wrong again. Canning Vale jail. There's a few jails there, they keep again changing their name. But anyway, uh, he called. He wanted to speak to me, no one else. He said, yeah, how can I help you? And he said, Ajahn Brahm, can you please come back to teach at my prison? He said, I've been a prison officer here all my career. I'm about to retire. I want you to come back and teach. And I said, look, I'm really busy. You know, I have to go to um, Indonesia. I have to go to um, uh, Melbourne. I have to go to England. I have to go, where else are you all from from here? <laughs> I do have to go to these places to teach. And I said, I can't, I'll send somebody else. He said, no, I want you. And of course, what's the next thing I said? Why me? And he said, I've been in this prison service all my life. I'm about to retire. I've noticed something unique. I don't know what you're doing. I'm not a Buddhist myself. But every prisoner who came to your class, when they're released, never comes back. There's no recidivism. I don't know what you're doing, but please come back and do it again. And that really touched me. And you're actually doing something. But of course, I thought, what, what have I been doing? And it was when I went into a jail. To this day, I've never seen a criminal in jail. I've never seen a murderer, I've never seen a rapist, I've never seen a thief. What I've ever seen is people who have raped, people who have stolen, but I've never seen a thief. If you understand what I'm saying there, why is it when somebody goes into a jail they've done a terrible thing, they've hurt so many, that's all that people see? The two bad bricks. And I think they're still in Carnot Prison Farm. There was one prisoner over there. He was a murderer, a multiple murderer. And apparently the other monks were told that he'd read that book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, and he's going around saying, I'm not a murderer. It was only two murders, only two bad bricks. <laughs> You won't be able to sort of uh, think those murders never happened. But at least now, when he's released, he will never think of himself as a murderer, as a person who's done two bad, th two bad things. He doesn't need to do them again. Oh, I'm going to share this story with you as well. There, you know, here at the moment we get different people feeding us every day. They bring the food in. On one of the retreats which we did here, we had difficulty finding a cook to feed everybody. I found one in the end, his name was Carl. Should I said that? I don't know, anyway. Carl, his, his name was. I saw him the other day, he came, he came on our range, on our container day. But anyway, he uh, so I said, can you do it for us, do the cooking? He said, yeah, okay, no trouble at all. So we'd come really early in the morning and do all the cooking for everybody. And the one thing which I really remember him, you know, he made pizzas, very healthy pizzas. He made the dough himself in the morning. He worked so hard for 60 more people, 70 people, making these all by himself. 
and not just that, just a whole range of food. He just worked so hard, but he never felt like he was busy. And then in the afternoon, he'd clean up and then go back. And only at the very end, I made the announcement, because people there, they love the food so much, they said, where's Carl? Why, why can't he come and just so we can say thank you to him? And I said, the reason he can't come, because he lives in Carnot Prison Farm. He's been convicted of serial rape. And I invited him here to feed you every day by himself. No prison officers was with him. I trusted him. And people were shocked. <laughs> if I'd have got, I would have been able to get permission from the committee for that. <laughs> they would have thrown me under a bus. But everybody saw that it was one of the best teachings of the retreat. People saw that there was a guy who they got to like, and he served. He didn't get any money for it. It was just his gift. And he had a wonderful time. It was great for him you know, to be able to serve the community. And it was great to teach people, why do we judge people just too harshly? You make one or two mistakes, and that defines your whole life. It gives them a t chance to do something to pay back the society for the hurt which he has given. But anyway, eventually, it was, you know, you, you talked to him, it was because of drugs. He just basically lost his mind. But anyway, that, that off drugs, people care for him or like him, and now he's having a wonderful life. He's married. And uh, he said he just built a, a house. He, I think he married a Philippine girl. So he built a house over in, in the Philippines, but he's going to move between the two countries. Did I do a, a good thing or a bad thing? Give someone a chance and teaching everybody else, please, look, you can trust me. If I thought it was at all a danger to any one of you, no way you could allow him to come in here. Anyway, I was reflecting on your story about the monk with a perfect posture and came to realize I am like that. <laughs> I worry what others think too much. How do I lessen this and let this part of me go? Very easy. If you're a monk, you can actually do what I do and just let your robe fall off every now and again and say, Ajahn Brahm, you've been a monk for so long, you still haven't learned how to keep your robe on. You relax. It does it by itself. I don't push it off. It just falls off. It's just gravity, does it? Not me. <laughs> and the other thing, why, are, why do people worry what other people think of you? you know, for me, that I'm, for such a long time, I've been trying to upset you. Say, oh, look, he's not a real monk. Look, his robe falls off. <laughs> And I so that no one comes to listen to my talks. I tell bad jokes, and you're still not upset <laughs> about the punchline. <laughs> and many of you have heard them all before. But nevertheless, I, th I always thought, if people don't like me, and I think I'd heard that story before, then they wouldn't need to tell it anymore, and I could just relax and just rest all day and retire. So, if people think badly of me, that's excellent. So I'm going to tell some really bad jokes. What was the last bad joke? The bad joke? No, but I'll leave that to them. The bear. Uh, it was bad, was it? Yeah. The bear. The bear. The rabbit and the magic duck. Okay, here we go. <laughs> okay. The bed's getting wet. No, not that way. Okay. Anyway, there were <laughs> there was a bear, a rabbit, and a magic duck lived in the forest. And this oh, I'm gonna get into trouble, here we go. <laughs> Ask forgiveness before I start. The bear would always be chasing the rabbit in the forest. 
chasing it so so much that he was making a big noise. And so one day they were running past the magic lake where the, the magic duck lived. And the duck quacked. He said, look, be quiet, you two. This is a nice, serene, peaceful place. Why are you making so much noise? And the bear said, well, I've got nothing much to do. It's just a bit of entertainment for me. So the duck said, Mr. Bear, Mr. Rabbit, I'll give you three wishes each if you promise never to chase each other ever again. So Mr. Bear looked at Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Rabbit looked at Mr. Bear, and they nodded, okay, agree. And Mr. Bear had the first wish. And so Mr. Bear, like, he was a male, okay? He was a bear, so don't worry about... Uh, educated humans wouldn't do this. He said, well, you know, I'm a bear and a male, and what I would really like is all the bears in the forest were all female. <laughs> and then I'll be too busy to chase a little rabbit. And so the duck said, okay. Went quack, and all the bears in the whole forest were all female. He was the only male. And so they asked the rabbit, what's your first wish? And he said, my first wish is a motorbike helmet <laughs> with two holes in the back for my ears. I said, what do you want that for? He said, look, it's none of your business. You know, you gave me a wish. I want a motorbike helmet. Quack. And then the motorbike helmet appeared, <laughs> appeared on, the, on the head of the rabbit. So then they asked, Mr. Bear, what's your second wish? And Mr. Bear said, I've been thinking. You know, that once all the other bears, all the other male bears in the vicinity here, in the region, here there's only female bears here, they'll all come here. So my second wish is may all the bears in the whole country be female, and I'm the only male bear. It's, you know, male psychology, bear psychology. So quack, and that happened. All the bears in the whole country, all female. And so then they asked the rabbit, what's your second wish? He said, my second wish is to have a Harley-Davidson motorbike, you know, <laughs> lots of fuel in it, to go with my helmet. I said, oh, that's a sensible wish, I can understand that. Said the ducks are quack. So then Mr. Rabbit was on this motorbike. A big Harley-Davidson, thousand cc's, vroom, 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 vroom. <laughs> and then they asked Mr. Bear, what's your final wish? And Mr. Bear said, well, you know, I should have said this to begin with, but once the bears in the other countries of the world, here there's only female bears here, they will migrate. So, look, I should have said this at first, but never mind. May all the bears in the whole world all be female, and I am the only male bear. Quack! And that's what happened. He was the only male bear in the whole world. Okay, Mr. Rabbit, what's your last wish? He's, <laughs> he's already laughing, you know, the punchline. <laughs> he's ready to make a quick getaway. Vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> he said, for my third wish, may Mr. Bear be gay. <laughs> <laughs> and he was off. <laughs> That was a smart rabbit. <laughs> so you're not offended by that joke? Oh dear. Okay, I'll do one more, or a couple more, because uh, we've got so many more left. I realise I don't know what unconditional love is. Everything seems to be conditional. Help. It's easy. Open the door of your heart no matter what happens. So first of all, what love is, the idea of opening the door of your heart, and whatever comes in, comes in. It's amazing, you can love so easily. You don't judge, you don't... Look, another simile of unconditional love, I haven't said it in public, uh, to, I think, on this retreat. When I was giving a talk to... Um, it was a mental health week. And it was to a group who they called the clients of the mental health service. These were the ones who were, you know, the, uh, visiting people, uh, visiting uh, counsellors, therapists, 
psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, often. And so I gave them a talk. And I said, I'm a forest monk. I live in forests all my life. And I noticed something, that in the forest, there's no such thing as a perfect tree. By perfect tree, I mean once, which is dead straight, all the branches in the right place, all the leaves there, no leaves which are brown or, or been eaten by bugs, and just all nice and straight, and no uh, damage on the barks, no damage from fires or things hitting it. I've never seen a perfect tree like that. Every tree in a natural forest is bent, twisted, missing a few branches, and uh, some of the leaves are just uh, not there where they should be or they're being eaten by bugs. And the bark, the trunk, is always damaged. I've never seen a bark of a tree in any forest anywhere in the world which hasn't been damaged. So I said, if you are not perfect human beings, if you're twisted and bent, and other people call you damaged goods. Welcome. You belong in this wonderful forest called humanity, real humanity. Number one, you belong. And number two, those of you who have been really damaged by life, you are some of the most beautiful people in the world. Just like the most damaged, twisted trees can be the most beautiful. That's unconditional love. It's some wisdom there behind it. You're not pretending. And I had a lot of them crying after that. They thought it was really cool. Are there any meaning when we experience nimbutas? And our nimbutas are always yellow. Could it be grey? Nimbuta can be any colour. There was this one guy, he got a black nimbuta. And that really is just challenged me, because I've never seen a black nimiter before myself. And now, are you really seeing a black nimiter? And he said, it was like, like satin. It was like just so beautiful, so deeply black. And I said, okay, that was a nimiter. The meaning, when we experience nimiter, I don't know what you mean about the meaning. The main meaning is you're still, and your five senses are disappearing, and your mind is appearing, your mind is dominating. I'm going over time, so... A quickie, please, Ajahn Brahm. Please remind me of the four ways to let go. Briefly, okay. You've let go of the four ways of letting go. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point of me telling you again you let it go? <laughs> now, ways of letting go is like giving. I hope you've tried that, just giving uh, an hour of meditation to the Buddha or to your dad. You know, Mervyn, he'd be just amazed. You should be able to do that really easy. That's giving, expecting nothing back in return. Number two is, um, Jaga, Patinistika. Yeah, that's throwing things away. <laughs> Having less possessions, not more. So don't think that, oh, I've got this stage of meditation, that stage of meditation. Throw them all away. The less you have, the more you've let go, the easier it is to fly right up into the air, get some really amazing meditations. And number three is Muti's freedom. Being happy to be here, even if you're in a jail. Jail can be really nice. Just, you, know, you, just, you don't have to worry about food, you don't have to worry about paying bills. And you can get solitary confinement. All you need to do is punch one of the prison officers and you get solitary for... It's like going on a retreat for free. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one is analia. Nothing sticks to you. People criticise you, they praise you, but nothing sticks. You're free. Okay. I have recently separated from my husband. My adult son is livid with his father... I try to instill kindness in my son and a more skillful way of looking at things, as he has a lot of hatred towards his father. I know it is out of my control how he feels towards his father. Is there any way I could help my son feel more kindly and have less or no hatred towards his father? 
Uh, first of all, make sure that you don't speak badly about your ex-husband, about your son's father. Just say, when do these things happen in life? Even milk has a best before date on it. And sometimes if you meet another, your partner, sometimes that, if you can find out, stamped on it somewhere. Uh, please use before <laughs> this date. <laughs> Otherwise it goes off. That's one thing which I did notice about relationships. Sometimes when it doesn't work out, and there's a separation or a divorce, people always want to blame somebody. Was it really anybody's fault? It's very easy to find fault with somebody else. But you know that sometimes these things happen in life. You might say it's quite common to have divorces. Of all marriages, how many actually last forever? I remember this one guy, he was on his fourth marriage. So we asked him, well, what happened to your first wife? And she, I was really sad, she died of mushroom poisoning. And his second wife? Uh, <clears throat> she died of mushroom poisoning too. <laughs> and I suppose your third wife died of mushroom poisoning as well. No, no, no. She died of a broken neck. She wouldn't eat her mushrooms. <laughs> Another stink joke. <laughs> okay, you should have enough of me. <laughs> Come on, let's, let's finish off. But no, just with your son, you know, just, just you know, tell them sometimes relationships, you know, they end. No need to hate anybody. And so sometimes this is what happened here. It's unpleasant, but nevertheless, these things occur. So don't hate anybody. So your son can learn about real life. You, know, you, you can have a nice relationship, you don't have to be afraid that maybe this relationship might, might not work. You give it everything you've got, try and make it work. But if it doesn't, at least you try your very best. But don't use mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm surprised you don't complain about I'm supposed to be teaching Dhamma in the evening. But you know, absolutely true that when I gave a talk in Melbourne once, after the talk, this guy came up to me and he was actually a professional comedian on TV. And he said, look, you know, your material, he's called it unique. Your timing is excellent. I want to offer you a job in, a, in the Melbourne Comedy Club. He actually offered me a job there. <laughs> Stand-up comedian. <laughs> oh, boy. I didn't accept. I did not accept, by the way. I said, if my day job takes all my time.